Chapter Five of the General Principle of Relativity, in its philosophical and historical aspect. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kolada. The General Principle of Relativity, in its philosophical and historical aspect. By Herbert Wilden Carr, Chapter Five, The Vortex Theory. The atomic theory of Democritus supported, and indeed for the most part represented, rationalistic and materialistic opinion throughout the whole of the pre-Copernican period. The theory was essentially atheistic, but the reason of its atheism is not immediately evident. It is difficult at first to see why the constitution of nature should have any relation whatever to the question of the origin of nature. As a matter of fact, also those who accepted the atomic theory, even Epicurus himself, did not on that account deny the existence of gods. The atheistic character of the theory lay entirely in the fact that its argument dispensed. With the necessity of God, the ultimate constituents of reality, the atoms, were by their very concept absolute. Creation and annihilation would only have meaning in respect of the grouping of the atoms. The creation or annihilation of an atom would involve self-contradiction. The annihilation of the atom contradicts the notion of a limit to its divisibility. The creation of the atom contradicts the notion of its simplicity. Clearly, then, if there are atoms uncreated and imperishable whose combinations, like the letters of the alphabet, produce infinite variety, we have in them a self-sufficient ground of nature. The world may have arisen by chance. There is no necessity to postulate a creator. So when Dante sees Democritus among the ancient sages in the first circle of the Inferno, he refers to him as Democrito, curio mondo arcaso pone, Democritus who ascribes the world to chance. A curious glimpse is afforded to us of the medieval mind and the form which materialism and rationalism assumed for it in the scholastic period. In another passage of Dante, Canto Ten, of the Inferno, where he describes the punishment of the heretics, who are the heretics? They are not the adversaries against whom Athanasius and Augustine struggled in the formation and interpretation of the creeds, and Dante is some centuries before the Reformation and the institution by the Holy Inquisition of the Auto da Fe. The heretics we find are the followers of a materialistic philosophy, not teachers of false doctrine. Dante names them the Epicureans. They include some famous Florentines of Dante's time, and also the Emperor Frederick II, who gathered to his court as Naples and Sicily erudite Grecians and Saracens, and revived the classical learning. 
They lie in their tombs on the fiery plain surrounding the fortified walls of the city of hell. As Dante, guided by Virgil, passes along, they push up the covering stone of the sepulchre, anxious for news of the living. They are the rationalists who thought this life is all, and that the tomb is the end. There, the wicked cease from troubling, and the weary are at rest. At last, they discover that their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Apart, however, altogether from the religious and ethical questions involved, the concept of atoms and the void furnished to pre-Copernican thought of the type of physical reality. The void was Euclidean space. In its purest, uncomplicated form, it was absolute in the sense of perfect emptiness. The puzzling fact in regard to the atoms was what we now call gravitation. It could be determined empirically, and its law stated. And for the conglomeration of atoms which forms our Earth, its direction could be fixed. But the falling of the atoms in the void was evidently embarrassing. Putting ourselves at the standpoint of the ancient world view, we can see that no means exist to decide whether the atoms are falling continuously through eternal time in infinite void, or whether they are at rest. If, however, it is not in the nature of the atom to fall in the void, it is difficult to understand why there is movement anywhere or anywhere. Movement would have to be impressed from without, and the ground of the self-sufficiency of the atomic theory would be gone. The whole of this ancient worldview was changed by the Copernican discovery. This discovery brought about a most profound and complete revolution in human thought, turned science and philosophy in a new direction, and with a new worldview, opened to the human mind new problems, new methods, and reformed concepts. No such tremendous effect in determining the intellectual development of our race has approached in importance that which followed this discovery. If we would classify scientifically the historical stages in the evolution of philosophy and distinguish them by a central epoch, we ought to mark all theories as being pre-Copernican or post-Copernican. That is in fact what we do when we name Descartes as the founder of modern philosophy. For Descartes was the systematizer of that discovery, the philosopher of that revolution, and his principles, his method, and his system are completely determined by it. Yet, the Copernican discovery seems a simple enough matter, and we are generally inclined to wonder how it could have been possible for mankind to continue so long without someone suspecting that the celestial movements were an appearance consequent on our own translation. We understand the shock to the religious faith of those who had pictured this earth as the scene of a tragedy, prepared from eternity by the divine source and sustainer of the universe, and for whom human history led up to and followed from that unique event. But so easily have we come to adapt ourselves to the new world wheel that we are unconscious of the change 
And indeed, our difficulty in reading the ancient philosophers is to remember that their concepts were concerned with an imagery totally different from ours. Suppose one had been born in a smoothly running railway carriage and brought up to find in it all the conveniences and necessities of life, able to look out into the world through which it is continually journeying. It would and it must seem to one so circumstanced that the panorama without is in ceaseless movement. Every alternation of relative position of the moving system would appear as a movement of the panorama. This was the condition of the human race. It developed intellectually through continuously successive ages, without ever suspecting that the movement it looked out upon in the panorama of the heavens might be apparent due to its own translation. The discovery came suddenly and with something of a shock. But the discovery having been made, the evidence for it accumulated with such force that the world view adapted itself to it, and we are no more able today to return to the old world view that we are able when we take a railway journey to believe that our carriage is at rest and the landscape moving. The philosopher of this new world view was Descartes. It is no mere chance coincidence that Descartes was philosophizing and elaborating a new system of the universe when Galileo was experimenting to prove the Earth's movement. A new concept of truth and reality on which the new aspect of the universe could be rationalized and harmonized was imperatively called for. It must be a return to absolutely first principles. Descartes laid down two principles of philosophy, one subjective and one objective, and both the direct outcome of the Copernican discovery and its revolution in the world view. The first principle is that intellect alone, by the clearness and distinctness of its ideas, can furnish a criterion of truth. The senses are deceptive, the source of confused and obscure ideas. The senses do indeed induce belief and seem to furnish an assurance of truth, but their purpose is not to lead to truth but to preserve the body. It is then not to sense, but to the clear and distinct ideas of the mind to reason that we must turn for true knowledge. Why the clear and distinct ideas of understanding should possess superiority over and greater validity than the obscure and confused idea of sense was indiscoverable in nature. Descartes fell back on the proof of the existence of God and the impossibility of our conceiving that in the case of clear and distinct ideas God could deceive, a principle which no longer appeals to us. On this distinction between sense and intellect was founded the well-known method of Descartes. He proposed to doubt everything which could possibly be doubted in order to discover, as a starting point, some fact which expressed, in the clearness and distinctness of its idea, a truth which it was not possible to doubt. Such fundamental truth he claimed to have discovered in the famous Cogito Ergo Sum. It is easy to see the connection of this with the Copernican discovery. 
Had not that discovery clearly demonstrated that mankind, universally and continually trusting the interpretation of direct sense experience, had lived in an age-long era? The second principle of Descartes concerns the objective reality of the universe. The universe is a mechanistic, not a materialistic system. It is not the outcome of the behavior of atoms in a void. It is the mechanical disposition of matter resulting from the imparting to it of movement. The essence of material substance is extension alone and there is no void. Movement is not change of place but relative change of neighborhood. Movement is only plausible in the plenum. Movement in the void is unmeaning and self-contradictory. Movement in the plenum is a vortex movement. That is, a movement which involves simultaneously every part of the system and is not propagated from part to part. The universe is a system of vortices, each vortex determining vortices within it and determined by relations to vortices without it. The solar system is a vortex. The fixed stars are similar vortices and the planets and their satellites are all vortices within the vortex, and all movement down to the beating of the heart and the circulation of the blood is one in principle, having its part in the universal mechanisms. This constitutes the first great systematization of the universe in accordance with the revolution in astronomy. These two principles, the subjective principle or new method, and the objective principle or mechanistic interpretation have had a diverse fate in the history of thought. While the first has been accepted as marking the beginning of a new period of philosophical speculation so that we regard Descartes as the founder of modern philosophy, the second, the cosmological and physical theory, is neglected and forgotten, or read when it is read, as an intellectual curiosity with no relation to present physical or metaphysical science. But in Descartes' own time and during the development of Cartesianism in the half-century which followed, there was no such dissociation of metaphysics and physics, philosophy and science. It was the Vortex theory which established the fame of Descartes. Give me matter and movement and I will make a world, was the famous challenge which he threw down to the theory of atoms and the void. Keeping in mind that for Descartes, matter is extension, we can translate it to mean that the variety and the uniformity of the universe are a function of systems of movement. To understand it, we must examine a little more closely the three distinct doctrines, interconnected and interdependent, on which it rests. These are, one, that the essence of matter is extension. Two, that movement is relative, not absolute. Not change of place in an independent expanse, but the relative change of neighborhood of extended systems. And three, that nature is a planum, there is no void, and movement in a planum is a vortex. The first of these doctrines is fundamental, 
It is the ground of Descartes' rejection of the void. Extension is not the empty place in which there is or is not matter. It is the essential attribute of matter. The direct argument for this is that extension is the only attribute which is inseparable and indistinguishable from material substance. Every other attribute, color, weight, sonority, resistance, shape, can be thought absent. But if we abstract from its extension, material substance itself is annihilated. The apparent contradiction that the extension of any matter is variable, as instanced by rarefaction and condensation, is easily explained at the disposition of a matter's extension in relation to other material extensions. Extension being the essence of material substance. If and when matter moves, its extension moves. Extension is not the quantity of emptiness matter feels. To say of empty space that it is extended, is to endow it with the essential attribute of material substance, and so to deny that it is a void. The rejection of the atoms is still more direct. They are geometrically impossible. Not on account of self-contradiction in the concept of indivisible particles having form or shape but no parts, but on account of their unchangeability, movement would be impossible if the constituents of matter had unalterable shapes. The second doctrine concerned the relativity of movement. The Copernican theory had merely substituted a heliocentric. For geocentric astronomical hypothesis, Descartes saw that it raised the metaphysical problem of movement. Nothing is at rest in the whole system of nature if being at rest means being in a moving system and not being carried along in its movement. But this is not what we mean by rest in ordinary experience. We say we are at rest and not moving. When the members of our system keep their relative positions, notwithstanding that the whole system may be in movement or translation, or may be itself not moving but borne along in a movement, we are at rest. For example, in the cabin of our ship, when wind and tide are transporting the ship to France, the Earth may be considered at rest. If we mean that it is carried along its path through the solar system like a ship on the ocean, it is no longer possible then, Descartes argue, to regard anything in its nature at rest. There are no fixed, immovable points. Nothing has a permanent place except in so far as it is fixed by our thought. The common notion is that a body moves when it changes its place in a void. Strictly defined, movement is not change of place but change of neighborhood. It is the translation of a part of matter or of a body from the neighborhood of bodies, with which it is in contact into the neighborhood of others. We can only define it relatively. When I push a boat off a beach, it is merely convenience which make me express it as a movement of the boat. Relatively to the beach at rest, and not as a movement of the beach relatively to the boat at rest.
The third doctrine had for its main argument the defense against the atomists, who denied it, of the concept of the possibility of movement in a planum. The argument of the atomists has been that there must be of necessity be the void, for without it, movement is impossible. Where, they asked, is the place in which to move if every place is already occupied? Movement, Descartes contended, is possible in a planum if the chain of moving members is complete so that the last of the series moves into the place of the first. Such movement is really changing place and not passing through a void which does not change. Indeed, if in moving we did not carry our extension with us, how could we have a science of geometry? In geometry, we are not measuring vacuum, we are measuring extension. The figures we construct and study in geometry, circles, squares, triangles, cubes, spheres, are measurements and constructions of the extension which moves with the earth, not of a supposed vacuum independent of that movement and indifferent to it. Endless complexities and contradictions, actual as well as logical, arise if we attempt to interpret geometry in terms of vacuum. We say, for example, that moving is the opposite of resting. Now suppose that, following the common notion, we define movement as change of place and rest as remaining in the same place. Then we see at once that for anything on the earth to be at rest, it must be parting company with the earth at a prodigious velocity. Descartes has therefore the choice of two alternatives. Either extension is an attribute of material substance and accompanies it in all its changes, or this vacuum existing independently of substance. If he chose the latter, he must sacrifice geometry, for no means exist of measuring vacuum. His philosophical theory, though opposed to the universally accepted notion was a necessity of thought and a great advance in mathematical and physical method. When I move about a ship, I am really moving notwithstanding that to the observer on shore, I may be at rest. The beating of my heart, the revolving wheels of the watch in my pocket, are regular movements, though the tracing of them on a chart against an absolute background would be hopelessly complicated and different for different observers. The application of this principle led to the construction of the magnificent scheme of celestial, or rather cosmical mechanism, which amazed and held spellbound the intellectual world of the latter half of the 17th century. The Vortex Theory the solar system is a vortex with the sun at its center, extending beyond the orbits of the distant planets. It is bounded by outer vortices. These are the fixed stars which, like our own sun, are centers of revolving systems. There are two laws of nature which Descartes formulates. They are rational deductions empirically verifiable. The first is that everything remains as it is till something changes it. The second is that every body which is moved 
tends to continue moving in a straight line. The rationale of the second law is that the straight line, being the shortest line, measures the force. The first law explains how bodies get involved in vortex movements. By these two laws, he accounted for the planets in the solar vortex. The planets, he said, are at rest so far as their sky is concerned. They are not careering through space, but being carried along with the moving system, that is, the solar vortex. They have been caught up in it, projected it may have been from outer vortices, and sent traveling in a straight line until they became involved in our system. Such is the mechanism which the guards substitute. For the old materialism, I have not dealt with details, but tried to bring into relief its essential features. It was the constructive work of a single genius. It enjoyed a brilliant vogue, capturing the imagination of more than one intellectual generation. Yet it had passed away so completely that it is hardly remembered, even as a stage in the evolution of scientific theory. The picture of the physical universe as a system of vortices, described with such mastery of minute detail and with such assurance in the Principia, is no doubt as far removed from our present imagery of physical reality as the description of the organism controlled by the animal spirits in Descartes's *Les Passions de l'Homme*. Is far removed from our modern physiological concepts. Nevertheless, in the one case as in the other, there are important principles insisted on from the neglect of which science has distinctly suffered. In outward resemblance, Descartes' world view is extraordinary, like that which is presented to us by the general principle of relativity. So much so. That it appears at first as though, in rejecting Newton's concept, we are simply returning to those of Descartes. We have only to remember, however, that the whole development of physical science has, in recent times, come to center around the electromagnetic theory, and that this concerns a continuity of experimental discovery. In a realm of phenomena entirely unexplored by the mathematicians, astronomers, and mechanicians of the seventeenth and eighteenth century, to see that there can be no simple reversion, the principle of relativity is in reality the rationalization of the electrical theory of matter. It is interesting to note how it was anticipated in the principles. Which suggested to Descartes the vortex theory. The concept of the vortex itself, a quite striking anticipation of the modern concept of the field of force. Descartes distinguished two ideas as intellectual, and therefore not subject to the deceptive appearance which characterizes the ideas dependent on sense perception. These are thought. An extension. By these concepts, he distinguished the essence of the two substances, which we refer to familiarly as mind and matter. So far as physical theory is concerned, the important concept is extension. 
In Durkheart's theory that extension is the essential attribute of matter, it is denied that there is any void or pure space within which matter moves. In Durkheart's theory that extension is the essential attribute of matter, it is denied that there is any void or pure space within which matter moves. Extension is not something moving matter leaves behind it. Or of which it exchanges one quantity for another, the moving mass or system carries its extension within its movement. From this, it follows that all movement is relative and concerned only with the relations of material system to one another. This accords completely with the modern theory of relativity. It is curious. That the duration of the universe did not impress Descartes as having anything like the importance which he attributes to its extension. He recognizes that the universe endures, but it is not, he thinks, by reason of anything in its essence. The fact of duration simply shows its dependence on God. If duration is the essential attribute of a substance, we must conclude that this substance is God. But Descartes does not himself draw this conclusion. Time is as necessary as space for a mechanism. Without time, the machine cannot work. But time plays the part of independent variable. It has no grip on the reality of the machine, any more than the time the clock measures is part of the contrivance. To us, extension and duration are correlative. And interdependent, from the historical standpoint, this is of peculiar significance. The Great Copernican Revolution brought in a new concept of the celestial mechanism, and incidentally, it reformed our view of the spatial universe. It was not until three centuries later that a reform of our concept of the duration of the universe. Parallel to the Copernican concept of its extension took place. It followed the great biological discoveries of the 19th century. The Darwinian theory brought as complete a revolution in our conception of time as the Copernican theory had produced in our conception of space. To Descartes, therefore, duration appears not as the essence of the universe. But only as that which is necessary to its existence, its continuity from moment to moment depended on a creating and sustaining power. It is then in the concept of matter as extension, and in the concept that movement and rest are mutually dependent on systems of reference, and in the concept of translation as relative to the members and parts of the system. Together with the rejection of any absolute zero, such as the void, affording a standard for the measurement of absolute velocity, the Descartes vortex system anticipates the principle of relativity. The doctrine that material substance consists in extension alone does not mean that pure extension exists materially without any other quality or character whatever. It means that extension is constant, and that no other attribute of matter is.
any other attribute which matter may have, or any attribute that it may need in order that we may apprehend it, is variable. It follows that all the diversity and endless variety of the material universe must be due to the movement and a direct function of movement. This follows simply from the fact that extension is not stuff, and therefore cannot harbor occult properties, essences, or forces. End of chapter five. The vortex theory. Recorded by Kualada.